This season of the Curiosity Club podcast is sponsored by Simprove. Simprove is committed to furthering the understanding of the function and role of the gut microbiome by using a scientific approach to developing the most effective bacteria-based product. Put simply, Simprove helps to support your gut microbiome and balance your gut bacteria. What I love about it is its water-based formulation that contains four unique strains of live-activated bacteria – Because of this unique formulation, Simprove will not trigger digestion, meaning the bacteria will arrive to your gut unharmed and in full strength, survive the harsh acidic environment that is your stomach, and thrive in your gut to colonise successfully. Simprove's 12-week programme will give you the best chance of nourishing your gut bacteria and supporting your gut microbiome. The more I learn about gut health, the more important I realise it is. And I'm currently in week four of my 12-week programme, and I love knowing that I am supporting and topping up the good bacteria that lives within me. If you want to join me on your own programme, Simproof have been kind enough to give all you lovely curious folk a special 15% discount for a limited time using the code CuriosityClub15. Welcome to the Curiosity Club podcast, a safe place for the real life lessons that we didn't get taught in school. Each season, I have conversations with inspiring experts who share their wisdom around our seven peaks of curiosity. Together, we learn how to break the patterns, habits and mindsets that limit our potential, hinder our happiness and impact our well-being. I'm your host, life and business coach, Katri Barrett, and these are the life lessons for modern humans. Welcome to season two, episode one. I am so excited to be back behind the microphone talking to you all. And wow, what a few months it has been. I've missed my weekly episodes, but it has been really lovely staying in touch with lots of you over on Instagram. And I've been thinking of you all. Behind the scenes over the past few months, I have been busy building the Curiosity Club into its very own brand. No more are we only a podcast. Moving forward, you can expect workshops, courses, events, and of course, regular episodes of the podcast once more. One big change is that we're swapping to seasons. In light of all that has been going on recently, I decided to use this season to focus on one of our seven peaks of curiosity, and that is mind and emotions. Over the next 10 episodes, I speak to some incredible guests and experts about topics like habit change, grief, confidence, self-harm, eco-anxiety, the mindset of anti-racism, and a lot of other areas that I feel are really relevant to help us all navigate what is going on in the world right now. I firmly believe that well-being goes so much further than just ourselves. There is a we in the word, after all, and that is why I specifically wanted my first guest to be the introduction to this season. I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Seema Kumar, the CEO of diversity and inclusion company The Other Box, a consultant, coach and certified yoga therapist. Seema's social media presence has been a huge grounding and educational resource for me recently and I wanted her to be the intro episode for the very reason that she wears so many different hats and has so much to say on so many important topics that are integral to the well-being of society and us as individuals. We spoke about what it really means to be human right now during the pandemic and all that's been going on with the Black Lives Matter movement recently. We explore how important it is that we all examine the conditioning and patterns that are within us all and the negative impact it can have on us and future generations if we don't. 
We talk about why Seema deviated from mainstream yoga, the impact that spiritual bypassing and gaslighting ourselves and others can have, and how we can stop caring so much about what other people think of us. This episode is called Truth Talks for a reason because it's all about the importance of confronting the hidden, darker areas of ourselves if we want to improve our emotional and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy and please do subscribe, screenshot and share as you're listening so that I can say hello and we can help others find these important messages. Just a quick note, most of the interviews were recorded during lockdown over Zoom, which isn't the best for audio, so please do excuse the sound quality, we were doing the best with what we had. So welcome Seema, thank you so much for joining us. And you are someone who wears multiple wonderful different hats, which is why I was so keen to have you as our kind of kick start and kick off an intro for this season of the Curiosity Club. So to kick things off, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what you do and kind of your journey to where you are today. Great. Okay. Yes. Wearing different hats is exactly the best way to describe it. So my career started as a fashion stylist and creative director. I did that for 23 years collectively. Um, I was a creative director, say, for about 18 years and then a fashion stylist for 23 years. And it's really informed the choices that I've made. So what happened is um, as I was growing in my consciousness, I was having a disconnect from my career. 2009, I took some time off and went to India and did my yoga teacher training because I'd always practiced yoga, kind of grew up with a yogic lifestyle, didn't know it. it was like my mom just called it life. There was no lifestyle. So um, just coming from an Indian background and um, then came back with a lot of clarity about, oh, you know, um, I'm just having a shift in values. So that meant uh, kind of starting an exit strategy to end my styling career. Uh, it was feeding, I saw, especially because I worked with a lot of celebrities, it was feeding a lot of um, unnecessary consumption and just looking at fashion's footprint on the environment and just uh, human rights issues. And all of these things were always percolating to the surface as I was in my yoga practice. So my when I say my yoga practice, I'm talking from childhood, but really distinctly since I was 18 and not just yoga postures, but meditation and the full kind of traditional eight limbs of yoga, um, known traditionally as Ashtanga yoga. So not Ashtanga yoga, the postures, but the whole traditional Ashtanga yoga. So that was happening. And, um, in 2014, I moved to the UK and I saw that was a perfect time to pivot. So in North America, I'm from Vancouver between, um, I wrapped up my life in LA and Vancouver and decided uh, not to move my styling kit. That would have been a very easy thing to do because I had a lot of connections here, especially with uh, producers and directors and could have fallen right back into that world. Didn't pack up any of that stuff as I edited down my life into four suitcases and moved over. And uh, found myself working as a brand director. Uh, was kind of the first time I was an employee and worked at that job for a year. But again, it was through a CEO that I'd known previously and had done some work with. Um, then, so I now have my own consultancy. It's called Seema Says. And that is, I do a lot of brand direction for people. So if it 
a lot of female entrepreneurs come to me and they say, I know I'm supposed to be doing something, but I don't know how to go about doing it. So I'm that person who helps you take um, an idea and turn it into a business. And um, when I say that, I don't do your business for you. I tell you how to do your business. So I'm at that stage of my career where I'm not a doer anymore. And then the other thing I did is I still love fashion. I still love clothes, but I do a lot of consulting into how to transition your wardrobe and then the rest of your home into a more sustainable lifestyle. Um, the other thing I do is coaching. So that kind of just fell into my lap because people were coming to me for advice. And I was just like, I would be the last person I go to for advice. But I think if you've lived long enough and made some really huge mistakes, like personally and professionally, and then show resilience, um, people respect that. And I'm pretty open about my failures, both professionally and personally. So that kind of was something that was born out of um, more of the clients going, no, I really want you to coach me. I have an aversion to the word coach. I don't know why. I probably should do some hypnotherapy about what it is. But what makes me okay with it is the other thing I do is um, I also, I'm also a certified yoga teacher. So I focus on satsang, which is um, called truth talk. So just it's, it is like coaching, but it's in a yogic field. So I do that. And I also do private yoga therapy and uh, I do guided meditations. So what I did is in 2019 started to wind down being a physical postures teacher, because um, I just think that for me, as I get older, I was just like, yoga is more than that. And for me, the guiding principle of yoga is um, meditation. It's really the, the, the journey inward. And to me, you know, the only reason really we should be focusing on asana is if we want alignment, it's really about stacking your bones so that your organs and everything else have the right place to live. But the way it's been culturally appropriated and sold and commodified um, and, you know, honestly whitewashed, I knew that I didn't want to be a part of that. The last thing that I do professionally is uh, I'm the CEO of a diversity and inclusion um, company called The Other Box. So we do anti-racism work, diversity inclusion consulting for whether it's the film industry, fashion industry, advertising, you name it, fintech, whoever it is. And so you can imagine with what's happening uh, in the climate currently, it's been Cracker Jacks busy for us. Mm. Yeah, and I can imagine. I mean, that's we've had a couple of conversations prior to recording today, which is partly why I was so keen to kind of do this as the as the first episode of the season because there's so many things I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours as as we <laughs> we already have done before recording this. And I I think your sort of personal story through all your diff- wearing the different hats and different careers exactly as you said that's what that experience that you've had and and the, uh, the resilience you, uh, that you have shown is really what I, I can totally resonate with why people are drawn to you for that and I know from following your you on your different channels on social media the way you explore these topics that hopefully we can we can 
unpack a few and explore a few today it really um sure. really really is it is in such a such a unique I think and, and way that helps people understand unpack big topics in a way that lots of at the moment so many people I think need to hear and need to be diving into you, you talked about satsang there and that um, sort of the truth talk element that is within satsang building upon that a little bit what would be your what are your reflections over the, what has been happening in the world in the last few months obviously we've had the pandemic and we've had this, the, the Black Lives Matter movement so greatly kind of coming to the forefront and, and, and all that's been going on with that but yeah I'll, I'll, what, what's, what would be your kind of truth talk on and everything that's been going on a great question. So I think the thing that's um, really the catalyst for this is the pandemic, right? So uh, because it's the first time in a lot of our lifetimes, like maybe we would have heard about our grandparents going through a lot of hardship. I was talking about this with my brothers and it's the first time our family has gone through kind of a collective hardship. And I mean, like just not our family is my mother, father, my siblings and their children and the rest of it, but collectively like my cousins, my aunties and uncles. So for what happens for me is um, my auntie in Durham passed away during COVID, not of COVID, but it meant that um, a woman who is widely celebrated and globally adored um, had this very sparse sending off. Right. So, and, and that's hardship because we're a family. Um, I think it's like partly being Fijian and having that Island mentality. We're very much like if someone gets married, if someone dies, people get on airplanes and they go. And it wasn't even possible for her, you know, uh, for two of her daughters who live overseas to come to her funeral. And that, that's what I mean, that kind of hardship. So we're all experiencing for the first time, maybe a wartime hardship or something that you hear about from your ancestors, but you've never really had that, that type of story to tell um, of your own. So I think that is the, the catalyst. So you get that situation and then you see what happened in America, which, um, you know, with, with Ahmed Aubrey, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd being like the trifecta catalyst, but keeping in mind that stuff happens there all the time. It's happening during this phone call. You know, it's, it's happening during this, this conversation. It's the first time I think because of COVID because it was recorded and it was blast around the world, there was more attention on it because we were literally locked in our homes. But that, ha- that has been happening for 400 years and it continues to happen. So I think it was that perfect storm of timing of this horrible incident that really people were already feeling confronted and then they were, you know, and I think the fact with George Floyd calling out for his mom. You know, I totally acknowledge and recognize there's people who have difficult relationships with their mothers, whether they're living or have passed on. But globally, the the mother is the the person that we all love the most. And um, I think it really just struck a chord that reverberated around the world. I do think that what's happened is a needle shifting moment. Um, I don't think the change that we're all fighting for and working towards and talking about 
will happen in our lifetime. But I think the um, what's happened is we realize we must do this forever work if we want it to change for our children or our children's children. So I talk a lot about... Um, don't do this because you want to see the change, because you're not going to see the change. Do this so that when the way that we all can think back to our ancestors and say, oh, you know, my grandpa or my great-grandfather or my great-grandmother, or, you know, there's always these legacies. When you are a great-grandfather or when you are a great-grandmother, what can that person say? My great-grandmother, my great-aunt did this into 2020. That's why we have to do it. So we can, we need to do it so that we can decide to be, we get to control the narrative of what type of ancestors we are going to be for future generations. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. And that's something that came up in our, in our previous conversation that we both shared as, as something that we both feel quite passionately about, the, that idea of breaking the patterns so that we don't keep passing on that, that, that cycle and, and using that as the, the driving force. And, and I love how you've, you've sort of yeah, phrased it as, as your legacy. What legacy will you leave to the future um, generations? With that, what would be, what do you think people, would we need to be acknowledging as individuals in order to better ourselves and also to feel better within ourselves, but also in order to pass on a better world to those future generations? I think every single person needs to address their own racism and their own racist tendencies. And that can sound so confronting because it basically says you are a racist and people say, I'm not a racist. Like that's like the KKK, that's racism. Like, um, you know, fascism, that's racism. But, you know, there's uh, overt racism, which we all agree is fundamentally and obviously bad. But there's so much covert racism that happens and they're all part of the same system. So it's not like two different systems. Here's the overt racism and here's the covert. If it's a pyramid, which you've seen a lot of the pyramids on um, Instagram, it's the same, it's the same system. And when you, I think individually, we all have to look at that covert racism that happens like jokes, like the, I was just joking. It's just a joke the n-word it's in a rap song and i was singing the lyrics if you're not black don't say it you know um and so there's all these little things like microaggressions gaslighting uh you know just really these behaviors that we all participate in all of us because we've been born if you're alive today you've been born into that system it's the only system that's ever existed which is a system of white supremacy meaning that whiteness has held the power structures and it's built to benefit whiteness. So that's different from white people versus not white people. Whiteness is an ideology. So when you get white people saying, I come from a working class background, I didn't have privileges. That is true, but you still have privilege through your whiteness. So what happens is I think people have to do that really kind of stop being defensive because me as um, a Canadian national living in the UK, born in Fiji um, of Indian heritage. So my great-grandparents would have been taken as indentured laborers to Fiji. 
And that's the nice politically correct way of saying slaves, right? So that's what happened. And um, so I'm somebody who is living in, by choice in the land of my oppressors. But what happened is being born not black in a black country where, with native Fijians, I was both oppressed and I was an oppressor. So the Indians had greater white privilege over natives and they oppressed. So it's like a double, double whammy. And I think the thing that what I do is I own my own racism. I own it online. I just say, this is how I'm racist. Um, and I'm really honest about it. Um, and the more we could just normalize that, the better it's going to be, right? Because I don't wake up in the morning saying, I hate Black people, but I know when I was in my 20s, I was violently assaulted by a man who happened to be Black. It's a narrative I only recently changed because the narrative used to be, I was assaulted by a Black man. And the reason I changed the narrative was because I realized if that person was white, I wouldn't say I was assaulted by a white man. That's what I mean when I say, I'm racist. I have racist tendencies towards where I position that person being black in the narrative of my violent physical assault. Knowing fully well that, that the color of that person's skin would not be a part of the narrative if they were white. It would have been just like, oh no, they're just some white dude. That's what I mean. We've got to own our racism. And I was like, Wow, that's racist. And that, and I th thank you so much for sharing that because I think it, I, that is exactly the, the the work that people need to. Anyone listening to this, uh, you said I think so 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 rightly that anyone who was born now, who was alive right now has been born into a white supremacist uh, supremacy system. Therefore, we all have these biases. So it's not about he said, she said, you pointing the finger. It's just all about all of us accepting we have them. What are we going to do to start to unpick them and rebuild a system that is is different in the future, breaking those patterns, moving it forward. And that's something even in, in the last month that I had performed, I, I, I wasn't comfortable kind of saying, being able to hold my hands up to that. Whereas now I'm like, no, no, I, I hold my hands up. I have biases. I'm racist in all of those ways without, whereas before I would have never been comfortable saying that, but I understand it's not about, um, it doesn't make me a bad person. It makes, it, actually it's better to own it because then it makes you, you human. Exactly. We, every human being has bias because our brains are processing 9 to 11 million bits of information every second. Think about that. So if your brain actually had to do that, your brain would literally explode. So what happens is, you know, we are programmed to filter that so that we can process 7 to 9 at a time. So bias is actually something that we all have, and it is very linked to us being able to move through the world as productive human beings. So that means when you're at work, you know, you, you're just like, oh, I can get through my day because I'm making these quick decisions and putting things in buckets. So I think, you know, 
what's happened is a lot of words like white supremacy all of a sudden comes up and everyone's like, oh my God, don't say that word. It's triggering. And it used to be triggering for me too. But the more you recognize that it's the only system we've ever existed in, then it's like, oh, it's the system. And people are like, what do you mean the system? I'm like the white supremacist system, right? And, and, and there's a lot of, it's very distinct who has the privileges in that system. And it becomes normal. Which to normalize it makes it less taboo. And what it is in yoga, right? That which is dark and hidden is unknown to you. And when you shed light on it, which is really the root word of guru, is it's just the guru is just somebody who turns a light to that which is dark and exposes something to you that you never wanted to look at. So in that sense, you know, now that we've shed a light on privilege, uh, white supremacy, racism, anti-racism, anti-blackness, you just shining a light on it. And these are all words and ideologies and systems that have all existed since for centuries, right? But we've never spoken about it because we've lived comfortably for those closest to whiteness. So white people and proximity to whiteness and the, the, the minorities and black people and other people of marginalized backgrounds have had to fit into that system. So they're like, we can't bring up those words. We'll be suppressed and oppressed more. So now that what's happened with social media is everyone is a broadcaster. So that's what I mean when I say it's all been happening all the time. It was just never being recorded and shared. So the world's gotten smaller because we all have our own broadcasting system in our hands. And so the sharing of information is global and it's really quick. So now it's a two-way conversation. Like if you think about media buying, right? Like you'd have to buy advertising. You'd have to pay PR to get into certain media. You had to know somebody who got you into certain media. Those systems that all exist within the system of white supremacy are crumbling because people with a lot of education, black people who are saying, this is the injustice, this is my voice, people, black people in entertainment who are willing to lose contracts, lose jobs, are banded together and saying, this is, we're going to bust this system. So I get that it's scary because, especially for white people, because it, like, why would you want to give up a position of power that you've had for centuries? But I think the thing is, if you look at it, especially with black people, black people are not looking for revenge. They're looking for reparation. And everyone should be praying to whatever they believe in that black people are not looking for revenge. And I think that that's the option that people are not thinking of is, wow, what would what opportunities could be created if I honor these people as human beings and give them the right space that they deserve rather than like, I'm, I don't want to give up what's mine. So it's, it's, I think it's a mindset. So I think there's people in positions of power who come from um, a fear and scarcity mindset 
because why would you want to give up centuries of power? But to me, I'm always imagining. So my creativity and my way of living and working is like always to really go into the imagination. So I'm just like, imagine the world. I was talking to my mom last night and I said, imagine if all the women of color got together. So all of the grandmothers from South Asia, from black you know, continents and countries and Asian continents and countries and indigenous lands all got together and said, these are the medicines from the earth that we were given by our grandmothers. I mean, you pretty much bust a lot of the pharmaceutical companies, which again is part of that system of corporations, capitalism, keep people sick because what's happened is People of color have always lived in accordance to nature. And if you look at the root of the colonizer, the, the colonizer's mentality when they came into foreign lands where they didn't recognize people as people, they call them savages, you know, um, is because they saw them half-dressed and they saw what they deemed primitive but primitive according to who and what? You know, maybe they didn't build ships, but maybe because they were very happy living uh, fruitful, abundant lives in their land. So there's a way um, that the colonizer's curiosity has been totally violent and oppressive, and it didn't need to be that way. Mm. I'm so informed with what you're saying and so interesting and sort of sparking up so many kind of things to think about there. And I, and I think what a, what a beautiful world that and that possibility of that. And I think I'm so interesting with that idea of being so connected to nature and something you said um said as well before when you were saying about the in, in guru being shedding the light on. And um, as someone myself, as some people listening will know, I have uh, in the past being a yoga teacher, a meditation teacher, and the whole issue of, of it, cultural appropriation again was something I, an issue I had, but another story for another day. Um, but how can yoga help with supporting people emotionally and mentally? And in particular, I saw, th- this is thinking of, I saw a post of yours recently talking about spiritual bypassing. And that's something that I would love for you to kind of unpack a little bit. And how, how can yoga help with this sort of tendency that we have to bypass the work that we need to do in order to break these, these patterns? So one of my things about deviating from mainstream yoga, um, which I, you know, when I returned from my yoga teacher training, I went to work at an amazing studio where I made amazing friends and a great community, but it was commodified capitalism yoga, right? It was, it, it was, it was that. And you know, the thing I credit the owners and founders for it, they weren't hiding that because people were still creating community and getting benefit. So with spiritual bypassing, the thing that you see with the appropriation of majority, uh, skinny white women, uh, taking asana and claiming that as yoga. First of all, there's a hypersexualization 
of the postures. So a lot of people say to me like, oh my God, we love watching like you go into a handstand and do this, that, and the other. Why don't you put it on your Instagram feed? And I was just like, why would I want to put it? Like the question to ask is why would I want to put it on my Instagram feed? You're putting it on because you look impressive or you want to get lots of likes or, or something. Unless you're really teaching people how to safely go into a handstand, there's really no point for it right? So there's, um, the spiritual bypassing happens when there's a group of people. So the, that are really a dominant group. So in this case, I will use the use case as the case study, white women in yoga, right? So white women, they're searching for something and they're, they're looking for some sense of belonging, a sense of self and, um, a way of finding their voice. And because of their anatomy and genetics, really, it's a lot, they're very easy to go down the path of yoga asana, the physical postures, and do a yoga teacher training and master these really beautiful, complex poses. So there's, what it is, is there's a boost to your self-esteem. You're like, wow, I can do this. Like I can do this. And you feel good. Like it, you know, it's great when you have mobility and you're flexible, it feels like magic, right? Because it feels like you are operating in the world differently. If you've ever suffered from an injury, you know that that loss of mobility is really damaging um, mentally, emotionally, and physically. So there's that element of it. But then there's this appropriation of just skimming the surface and pretending like you've gone deep so that when anyone wants to have a confronting conversation with you or just say a deeper conversation or challenge a point of view, it's become this love and light. I'll, I, you know, I'll keep you in my meditation and, um, yeah, I, I will include you in my meditation. That is spiritual bypassing. That is gaslighting. That is totally saying, I'm not going to have a conversation. I'm not going to look at my responsibility in whatever exchange it is, but I'm going to keep you in my meditation. Like I'm doing you a favor. And that's where it can be really, really damaging. And that's where the crux of a lot of cultural appropriation in yoga comes from on a very widespread level. There's so many different angles to it, right? Like you can go into people saying, why do I have to say Sanskrit or why do I have to pronounce things properly? That's a whole other conversation, but it's, um, but where yoga could be helpful and see what happens is I had some people go off on me on my, um, Instagram posts recently when they were just like, so are you saying that white people have culturally appropriated yoga? And I was like, yes, that's what I'm saying. A lady, some lovely lady who makes cakes somewhere in the UK went off on me and she was like, I'm so upset. I can't say, you know, I can't believe you're saying this because she was like, I go to yoga to feel peace. But you know, that is not the true purpose of yoga. Yoga is like a living exorcism. And traditionally, um, families send their children to yoga masters so that they can be groomed in a way of living that is ethical and moral from a young age, which is that's that level of 
yoga. That's the yamas and niyamas. So there's five of each. And one is, this is how I am going to operate in the world. You know, truthfulness, um, you know, just having ethics and honesty. And this is the way I'm going to operate through the world outwardly. So one is inward and one is outward. Nobody even looks at that portion of yoga. The reason Indian families send children to yoga masters early as five years old is to learn the yamas and niyamas before they're corrupted and absorbing the biases and racism and prejudices of their family. But what happens is whiteness and white culture was like, that would be so cruel. How could you send your little child away? But you're teaching, you're, you know, you're growing human beings. Whereas now, regardless of what culture, it's prevalent in many cultures, people procreate for their own wants. They have a children because they feel, I must be a mother. Or they're like, I need to have a son. I need my name to go on. Why? Why? We're burning up the planet. We're killing each other. What do you want? Have you thought of what you're going to leave your children into? If you had true compassion, you would rethink that. So the way that people can use yoga to not spiritually bypass is to really learn the true reason for yoga, which is liberation. Now, liberation does not come in a love and light mala. It comes through stripping of layers, of ego, of lies, of manipulations, of so much stuff that we do. And until you start, that is the true tantra yoga, right? The peeling away of the masks. Sting says one thing around tantra yoga and people think it's the yoga that you can have sex now, foreplay for six hours. But the true tantra yoga, and if you look at relationships, whether they're heterosexual relationships, same sex, or gender fluid relationships, you pick somebody who's opposite of you because your opposite will show you that which you are not. And so it mirrors that which you are not. So in heterosexual relationships, the true tantra is you will be triggered by that person. But what people do is like, this relationship's not working anymore. It's tough. I'm going to you know, they just weren't me. I'm looking for somebody really spiritual. How do you, like, you have to go through that exorcism in life. That is the true essence of yoga. It is not to feel good. You have to feel really bad. Like when I went through my yoga teacher training and my um, yoga teacher helped me through a very difficult time in my life, breaking out of a relationship, it felt like being turned inside out every single day. That is liberation. When you have unpacked every corner of yourself, which you'll never do until the day you die, unless you do commit to that spiritual life as a yoga master or a sadhu, you know, people who just live that contemplative life. That is the true journey of yoga. But the spiritual bypassing of Anytime somebody says something to me that, ooh, it's triggered something that I'm not willing to look at, I just turn around in a sweet, saccharine voice and say, I'll include you in my meditation, love and light. It's that, that is an act of violence mm-hmm. because you're completely stripping that person's um, humanity out from underneath them. You're saying like, you know what? 
I don't see you. I'm going to pretend like this never happened. And the unspoken contract is we're never going to talk about it again. And then that's why people are like, I go to yoga, but I still don't feel a connection. It's because you're going to yoga as a liar. And the first person you're lying to is yourself. It's the same, it's the same link with the um, anti-racism work, right? You got to get honest with yourself. Exactly. And this is why I was exactly I wanted to talk to you because I think you've touched upon so many things there in the I suppose mine's main overarching takeaway is that reinforcing that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay. It's not the point of doing yeah. the work or and for example, going to yoga or doing the work in inverted commas, isn't that you will be fine. It's the opposite. If you're not it's getting comfortable with the uncomfortable because then you're doing the work. And ultimately that is that, so that should be the goal. And I think if you're not, if you're not being triggered, if you're not having that, whatever your emotional response is, that is okay. But it's about unpacking it, as you said, shining the light on those dark areas and that, or the darker corners of yourself. And that is exactly why the Curiosity Club exists to help everyone do just that. What, going further on that, what, and I know something, a, a phrase that you, you've said, um, I have, I've heard you say is becoming a human being and not doing, how can we unpack this more as, as, um, or how can we kind of start this work as individuals? And I'm wondering with that, you know, I, I, I hearing you speak and realizing and with clients and myself, often we kind of spiritually bypass ourselves and how, how can we start doing the work that's necessary as, as individuals in order to be more emotionally and mentally well? Yes. When I, I, this thing that you notice when you go somewhere and you meet new people, whether it's a small dinner party, a huge party, um, anything, you go to a wedding or reception. So you're just like, Oh, you know, hi, I'm Seema. And it's like, hi, I'm so-and-so. You're like, so what do you do? So we are, again, this brings me back. I know I'm going to sound like a broken record. This comes back to that. We live in a capitalist society that capitalism is the like you know part of the white supremacy because it's about your value as a doer, not a beer. And so we lead with what do you do? I always ask people, why do you want to know? Like, why is that the first thing you want? And I get it; it's a conversation starter. People are always looking to break the ice, right? But again, you know, we're we're seeing the rise and of. Um, people feeling isolated. We're more connected than ever, but feeling super disconnected. And the thing that I found for myself was, and I've done this, right? So I was always the new kid in school. um, And there was a year that my family moved so much that we don't even have a, a class photo because we moved so much. So when in that year, I was always, uh, living in Canada in very white, um, neighborhoods. So I was always that girl who was like, this is Seema um, standing in front of the class after everyone's, you know, made their little friends circles and stuff. This is Seema and she's joined us from blah, 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 you know, whatever school or she's moved here. So she's going to be sitting at that desk if you, you know, if somebody wants to, and then the teacher's really saying like, you know, is there anybody in this class who would be willing to befriend her? So you're really, (laughs) you know, and as a brown skinned person, um, I would always hear like, this is Seema. Uh, nobody's really going to want to be her friend because she doesn't look like any of you. Like I'm literally looking at a class and nobody looks like me. So then you start figuring out how am I going to fit in? How am I going to fit in? 
Like you literally can't fit in. You can't blend in. So for me, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was my bohemian nature or I always was curious and creative and imaginative. You know, my mom told me that when I was five or six years old, I'd always be like locked up in my room reading the Bible. And she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm looking for God. And you know what I mean? I was, I was that kid. And um, so what I would do is I recognized and being, uh, you know, working in styling and still working in creativity I realized I was a visual person. So I knew, I was always aware of my brownness. So some people say like, you know, that's why when people say, I don't see color. It's like, how can you not see color? Um, so I was always aware of my brownness and I always saw about 36 kids who were not brown. So I automatically knew that I wasn't going to fit in. And I figured out very early, this, there's actually a lot of freedom here. I could just be me because I'm never going to be someone who looks like any of these people. So that was, you know, my beingness. My first name is actually Susanna because my father's Catholic. So we have Catholic first names, my brothers and I, and we have Indian middle names. And my mom and dad tell, tell me that when I was two in Fiji, I overheard um, them speaking about my middle name and didn't realize that Sima was my middle name. And the next day, just decided that I would no longer answer to Susanna. So they were forced to call me Seema. So I, I kind of knew that I wanted to be Seema. And I went through the Canadian system as Susanna. And then my friends who got to know me and would come over to my house and get to know my parents, they knew me as Seema, right? And they're like, oh, okay, we get it. So be, I could always tell now, even, you know, when you get Facebook reunions from 30 years ago, who I'm close with and who I'm not close with, if they call me Susanna or Seema. So the beingness is really looking at who you are. So we're always projecting out in the world, like, what do I have to do to be liked? I was, would advise people to say, what do I have to do to like myself? So you're really showing up present in your own self. So you're embodied. You're embodied. So for me, you know, I'm not that tall, thin, um, you know, late twenties, early thirties, beautiful girl who walks into a room. But the feedback I get often is, you know, you attract a lot of attention. And, uh, when I was still on my journey and didn't quite understand that, I would kind of bypass that and be like, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, um, but my really beautiful friends and the, the friends that were frenemies would not like that because they were really actually gorgeous creatures, lots of the models and, you know, all of them. Right. And going like, why is she getting the attention? Because like, first of all, she's small, she's brown, like she's not overweight. She's not thin, like she's like normal, right? And what I realized is when you embody yourself, you command attention. You no longer need to demand attention. And the goal becomes in learning how to negotiate the attention you command with grace and compassion and empathy and not with ego. So that is what I refer to as a human being. So now when people are like, why does everybody like stare at you? I was like, I don't know. It's a really great question. Go ask the people who are staring. It's not up to me 
to know what other people are doing. It's up to me to really be embodied in my own self. And that kind of, it builds a confidence that a lot of people, especially women, want to say, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to be that because that sounds conceited or it sounds arrogant or it sounds self-centered. Do you know what that is? That is conditioning from the white supremacy hierarchy of patriarchy. We're supposed to play small. But I know that at now, you know, I have a milestone birthday coming up. If I don't accept it at this stage, when am I ever going to accept it? I know that. But my goal is now not to weaponize it and oppress people with this commanding of attention. So if I can shine a light on someone and I can be helpful, I can be kind, I can be compassionate, I can be supportive, I am a human being. But if I want to do something, then I'm going to weaponize all of these things I know about myself and try to do something at the expense of somebody else, undercut somebody else, undermine somebody else, and then you're a human doing. Like, what are you doing? So for me, I don't ever want anything from anyone. And that is probably the most disconcerting quality in people because they're just like, what do you want? And I was like, Nothing. But we're, 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 we're built because of this system of white supremacy to constantly be negotiating. And that's why we're human doings, operating as human doings, when what we are designed for is to be human beings, live closer to nature, build communities that are sustainable, honor relationships, be together. Oh, I love so much of, of what you just said, and I think, and it, as you say, you—it sounds like I don't know from what you said, you've you've done the work, and that has got you to that point. What would be your advice for the individuals who are listening and thinking, "Well, how, how, where the hell do I start? I can't. How do I not um, do be the doing? How can I not command and demand and uh, the attention in that way?" What, what for the, anyone listening who's maybe at that stage of their their journey, what would be some sort of practical bits of advice that you would give them for them to be able to do the, the work necessary and become more being. One thing that's really helped me, I was always a seeker. So I was always seeking. I was reading books and I was looking at things. I was reading podcasts and all of that stuff. And that's a very important stage of the journey. But what happens is when you're seeking and you're, again, if, you know, depending on your archetype. So if we take the yoga archetype, that case study that I used of white women, skinny white women, right? And then you're going to seek. So then we usually go to people like Marie Forleo or we go to Gabby Bernstein, hugely problem, amazingly successful, hugely problematic. So now you're seeking to be um, integrated via disintegrated people. So what I would suggest is if you have a meditation practice or if you're a runner, like when I used to run, I definitely love that point where that chaos of thoughts and breath and pounding the pavement kind of came together and it became beautifully meditative. Like it was one system and you were now in embodied and moving towards instead of all these opposing forces, whatever it is for you, it could be swimming. It'd be taking a walk in nature. It could be walking your dog. I advise people to stop 
seeking. There's a, there's a time to ask questions and there's a time to command answers. So what I do in my meditation is I literally, I'm like, I'm ready. Like I'm caught, call it in. So I do this also when I see 11, 11, cause I've done that since I was a teenager. Right. And I'm like, it's 11, 11, all stop meetings. I'm in, you know, um, my colleagues at the other box. know they're like, I just interrupt. I talk over anybody like it's 11, 11, call it in. And I get everyone to call it in. So calling it in is different because what I do is I say, I want to know the truth and I want you to be very, very clear. I don't want this to be vague. I don't want this to be esoteric. I want the answer to be extremely clear. What do I need to know about myself that I am not willing to find out by asking questions? So if your questions are not getting answered, command answers. Because what happens is our biases and our filters and the absorption and social conditioning and being scared of who we really are makes us skew the questions. And if we ask the questions, we skew the people that we go to to look for the answers because they will mirror what we want to know. And what I do is I go looking for the most opposing force the most opposing viewpoint because until I figure out how other people think I'm living my life in an echo chamber, which takes me back to the spiritual bypassing of yoga, which takes me back to not wanting to do our own racism work, right? Cause we're living in these echo chambers of everyone looks like us, you know, or they believe what we believe, go and find the opposite of that, which you are. And that's when you can start because it's understandable. Like life is really hard, but we have to understand too, this is the best humanity has ever had it. When you think about all the technology and the developments and the way we can get our food, the way we can get around, this is the the easiest human beings have ever had it. So when we put it into context of history and that way you can start really recognizing your privilege and then looking at what don't you want to know? And what we usually it is, is we don't want to look at the bad things that we've done because we don't want to be bad people. And I tell you the most liberating thing is I've unpacked like all the bad things I've done. I've been, I've been mean to people that I've been in love with. I have made mistakes with my family. I have, you know, been in friendships out of um, convenience. Somehow justifying to myself, I'm like, I'm a good person. That's why I'm staying. But no, I was getting something out of this as well. And when we start again, talking about it, like it is, completely normalized because it's part of being human. I mean, when now I look at it and I think how hilarious and ridiculous it is that we try to go through life going, I'm a good person. I only do good things. I only think good thoughts. I am always looking for goodness. I'm always doing good. I was just like, that's not a real person. If you look at all of our, you know, um, heroes and the hero archetype in, in history, whether you're into science, pop culture, whatever, they're extremely flawed human beings. 
why do you want to be one dimensional when you can be somebody's hero in the future? just by being your whole self. So I would really advise people to start asking for the answers because it will come to you. If you open up the portals of consciousness that are truly wanting to know the truth, the truth will come to you and it will not be obtuse. And I suppose that's, that is the essence of curiosity, being curious, as I see it, being curious about those answers that perhaps you've been avoiding and not asking the right questions for, for maybe your in, entire life. And uh, what that is from holding myself accountable to do that too for myself is partly why the curiosity camp exists as I think it's, it's so important to do with that question. I, I like to ask everyone is what does curiosity mean to you? I think I, I said that, I think for me, you've kind of reflected it a little bit there as what I, I what it means to me but what what would it mean to you and how and why do you think curiosity is is helpful for people I think curiosity is about being interested and less concerned with being interesting so in a world that is perpetually trying to be interesting um curiosity is about being interested and then just digging a little deeper and hacking into that interest and uncovering things. And, you know, it's like Instagram, Pinterest. Once you go down one, it uncovers another and another, and you don't even know what the the first source was. That to me, those kind of spirals into whether it's literature, history, a craft, whatever it is, a person, um, you know, I went down that role of like, how do I make my hair? Like, how do I grow my natural hair color in gray? Right. That's that curiosity of what do I have to do? What are my options? Um, it's, it's because I was interested in being my true self, which is somebody who has gray hair rather than seeming interesting, like, oh, you look so young, or I love your hair, or, you know, because I was blonde for two years, and, and not getting caught up in that. So to me, being curious is really about being interested and dislodging from the obsession of trying to come across as interesting. That is one of the most beautiful answers I think we've I've had to that question, and, and such an important reminder: interested and less worried about being interesting. I, I really, really, really love that. To finish off, please tell everyone where they can find you, and yeah, more about your work and what you do, and, and find you and connect with you. Yeah. So um, my like day job, as I put it, it's which is not everything is all con- encompassing. Um, with the other box is you can find us at the other box. It's uh, underscore at the other box on Instagram is a great resource for anyone wanting to understand um, intersectionality, diversity, inclusion, anti-racism. So you can find us there. You can find me at Seema Kumar, my first and last name on Instagram. My website is www.seemakumar.com. You can always drop me an email. Yeah, that's where you can find me sometime. When we're out and allowed to be more out and about. I'm always wandering around Hampstead Heath as well. So I've actually had people like bump into me at the ponds or in Hampstead Heath going, I follow you on Instagram. And I always wondered if I'd see you on the Heath and stuff. So yeah. 
That's so lovely. So people can look out, look out for you there. And I highly recommend giving um, Seema a follow on Instagram. I will leave, I will connect all to, to your websites and stuff in the show notes. But thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's such a nice uh, opportunity to share some time with you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you leave a rating and review letting me know what your biggest takeaways were. I love reading each and every one. Thank you to Simproof for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget that you can get 15% off with discount code CuriosityClub15. As we're all curious folk around here, why not head over to simprove.com to find out more. Until next time, stay curious.